Welcome to the Chasing Presence podcast, co-hosted by Santi and Mike. This is a space where we share our insights for how to live a more spiritually aligned life. Join us on our journey to expand consciousness, live with purpose, and awaken to our true nature. Welcome, everybody, to the Chasing Presence podcast. Today, we are honored to have Kamara McKell with us today. Kamara McKell is an 18-year survivor of major depressive disorder, acute anxiety disorder, and PTSD. She was Baker acted and hospitalized two times for suicidal ideation. Her nonfiction book, Kept My Enemy Closer, is available on her website, kamaramckellworldwide.com, in hardcover, paperback, and and ebook. Kamara is an inspirational speaker, author, and podcast host. She candidly shares her truth about being diagnosed with depression. She is relentlessly dedicated to sharing her story of spiraling into depression, marital strife, divorce, drastic financial loss and divorce. Again, her mission is openly to share how she got from that point to this point. Ms. McKell is a native Floridian. She has 25 plus years in executive management, has earned her master's degree in business administration, a BS in criminal justice, and an AS in paralegal studies. She was inducted into Cambridge Who's Who Among Professional Leaders, National Induction, and Strathmore's Who's Who. Kamara prides herself on her superior interpersonal skills and her innate ability to bring people together for the good of the cause. Kamara, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm about to say, well, who are you? Who is that? What a glowing bio. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So today we are very excited to talk about some of the experiences that you have gone through in your life and are gracious enough to share those very adverse experience with other people in order to help them. So it is it is my understanding that you have, you know, been through two very difficult marriages of which you've gone through um, many different experiences that have definitely shaped who you are today and have and have helped you become an amazing person. So with that being said, can you tell us about your experience with going to therapy for 16 years and having a therapist know you throughout all of these difficult experiences and what that has been like? Yeah, well, therapy started for me back in 2005. Um, I, the depression with me um, has lasted normal than a, longer than a normal person. So my therapist, when I went back in 2005, that's when I was diagnosed. Um, initially, I was in therapy three times per week, horribly bad. Um, and what happens with me in, in, uh, when I get depressed, I want to isolate like a lot of people. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to see anybody. And for some strange reason, I stop eating. But it's not trying to not eat. It literally is I have no appetite. And then I walk profusely. So um, like I said, with the, with the diagnosis, she started me three times a week. Um, and like she said, for the first six months, she said, I just sit there and cry through every single session. So she said I would sit there skinny and frail. And I, I think I was at a point where I felt like nothing worse could happen to me. Um I just literally wanted to forget my life. I wanted to forget my children that I'm so close to. I wanted to uh, not have to be bothered with my husband. And I was that way for a very long time. And I remember my mom calling me once. She called and I didn't call her back. You know, she lived in North Carolina. 
And for about three months, I didn't talk to my mom. And my mom is not, she's loving, but she doesn't cry often. And I remember listening to, it was an old fashioned uh, with the house phone. And I remember her leaving me a voicemail. And she said, she said, Kamara, she said, if there's anything that I've done to you to make you not want to talk to me, she said that I couldn't take. And I was like, man, but I didn't want anybody to know what was wrong with me. I just wanted to, like I said, isolate and just let the world completely go away. Um, I was pretty much on bed rest um, when I got diagnosed in 2005. I had to go to, a, like I said, the therapist, but then they needed a second opinion. But my doctor kept me out for six months and I had a city of Tampa job. So she kept me out for six months because I wasn't functional. And then I tried going back to work to the city and then she took me out another five months. So, yeah, I was I was completely non-functional. So what led to this um, diagnosis in 2005? Was this depression that was gradually getting worse before that? And then in 2005, it was kind of rock bottom. Did you know you had depression before then? Can you kind of talk to us about leading up to that point in life? Sure. So I was uh, in a marriage. Well, if this might, might sound not normal to you all, but I found out that my first husband, that he had... Um, an addiction to pornography. And I know that seems like, oh, that's no big deal. When I found out about it, about it, to me, it was like he cheated on me. And I could not get myself together because I had this husband that I loved. He was this wonderful guy, not perfect, but he was a really good, solid person. So for me to walk in unannounced into his office at our house, and to see those, um, I'll never forget, I remember exactly what one woman looked like. And just to see him looking at those pictures, and then he minimized the screen. But I already know what I saw. And he kept trying to, you know, talk to me, saying, oh, no, come on, honey. You know, I'll come and eat in the dining room or whatever. And I remember just my heart beating out of my chest. And I remember sitting to the computer, and he was steady trying to lure me to come out of his office. And I just sat there, and I started it was like my heart is racing and I'm pushing on buttons trying to undo the minimize. And I found it. It came up on the screen and it's like that literally changed my life and the course of my life. So with that, I had uh, I had all of a sudden lost my best friend who was my husband. And I felt like that for about five days. And I was like, this is not working out. I got to get to somebody who can help me or I'm just not going to be alive anymore. So I went and got diagnosed and that's how, that's how it started. But I remember my therapist explained to me, she said, um, she said a, a, a quote unquote normal person, this might bother them. It might hurt them. She said in my brain, I was already predisposed to um, major depressive disorder. She said it was a gene already in me that would make something seemingly small she said you would like I would ruminate and I didn't even know what that word meant back in the day. But I literally th those pictures stayed in my head and would not leave. So it took my energy. It took all of my time and I could not uh, I couldn't have a, a balance. It was either black or white in my in my brain. There was no gray. So that's how I initially went into uh, to, to therapy to, to get some help. So as we know, pornography addictions are 
extremely debilitating, especially, especially for a man. It takes away a lot of your manhood. It takes away a lot of your energy. You know, I did used to be addicted to porn. I am no longer. I'm so grateful of that. Um, and it has allowed me to, you know, appreciate my relationships, put a lot more energy into my, into my business, into my, into my personal life, into my passions. And I'm very grateful for that. So when, have you always been very aware of the, um, of the drawbacks of being a porn addict? Do you think that your husband could have ever changed or was, or was this just something that you was completely against your values? And I'm just like, I'm what, what, what happened in your mind in that moment? Like what, why did you feel so horribly towards this person after you saw what you saw? I felt like um, I was disposable. I felt that uh, he didn't like my body anymore. Uh, he might as well have, have physically cheated because in my brain, that's actually what would have happened in, in my brain. So like I said, my therapist said it affected me different. So the ruminating, I couldn't sleep. It was like 24-7. Those pictures played around in my head 24-7. And I, I didn't even know what to do with myself. But I know that something changed in me because I never saw him the same. He was not the same man to me. But I think he had been doing that for a long time. And I just had to cook for him. The keys happened to, you know, go to my city job all day and still had on my heels. And I'm like, let me go. It's, oh, let me bring him a plate of food in his office. He's working so hard. And he didn't have the door closed. Because I guess I'm not a snoopy. I wasn't a snoopy wife. So literally he would have had no, no reason to think I was going to go in there and say, what are you doing on the computer? I have never been a person like that, but it completely, it completely changed my life. And my relationship with him was never, ever the same ever. So after this incident, you start going to therapy, you get diagnosed. What type of therapy do you start enrolling in? Is this cognitive behavioral therapy? What modality is being used? And what does this process look like for you? If you could walk us through the experience of therapy. Okay, I would think cognitive uh, therapy. Um, So there was a main doctor, and I I can say his name, but I don't know if that's allowed. Anyways, he was at University of South Florida in Tampa, so USF. And um, I remember uh, going to him because of how I felt and also I knew that I wasn't functional. So I had to get what's called a sick letter from him. And then he referred me to um, to my therapist that I still have to this day. So she's a psychiatrist and she's also a medical doctor. So like I said, the rigorous therapy three times a week, not eating, uh, ruminating, can't go to work, don't want to see anybody. And literally the therapy was just mostly her talking because... She said, I just sat there and cried. So I remember some of those aspects. I don't remember a whole six months going by that I was three times a week. I just know that I wanted to um, just not be alive anymore. And like I said, for a normal person, that might be like, oh, it's just porn for me. To me, it completely changed my life. So I don't think I had like rigorous therapy. Um, It was more of let's sit here. She's going to ask me some questions. I'm going to answer the questions. Um, She's going to try to start telling me that there are, like I said, gray areas. Everything is, I was like far left and then far right. There was nothing in the middle at all. 
So that was very um, that was very difficult to see things. Nothing, nothing balanced. It was like I'm way over here or way down here. And that took a, a long time. Um, and in the therapy, it, it didn't bother me. I just I felt so sad. I didn't even want to talk. It was like, what do you say? And I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed because how is it that I'm the only one who has a husband with a porn addiction? That was in my brain. That's how I thought. So I thought everybody else had this great, <clears throat> excuse me, this great life. And old lowly Kamara, here you go with a husband who wants to look at other women's body parts and not mine. And, and I'll share this too. It's in my book. I think the reason it hit me so hard is because my husband was always very conservative in bed. So I'm thinking, how does, how does he want to look at this stuff? But we can't do, do any of that at home. And it was always um, amazing to me of how he was. And he was he's six years older than me. And I was just like, like, what's wrong with me that he doesn't want to have sex like everybody else, in a sense? I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, what is wrong with me? Why doesn't he see me as sexy and beautiful? And he was never the kind of husband to be like, oh, honey, you look pretty never complimented me once in his life, but I knew he loved me. He didn't think I was ugly, but he wasn't a complimentary person. So that was fine too. I had no problem with that, but I knew that he loved me. But at that moment, when I saw that, my self-esteem was shot, completely shot. And to me, there was nothing he could say. Yeah. I think that, you know, in relationships, um, obviously the first thing that is generally the most important is having a compat compatible personalities and similar values and beliefs beliefs but it's also very important to you know have that spiritual sexual connection in romantic relationships i do believe that it's very important um and what it sounds like was happening is that um he he had some issues with porn addiction and it kind of prevented him from being as sexually connected to you as he should have been um, so that makes a lot of sense. And I can see why you'd be so distressed. Cause like to you, it's just like, Oh my God, it all makes sense now, you know? Um, so I'm sorry you had to go through that, but it does seem like that going through that experience has given you a lot of insights. But, um, uh, before we talk about those insights, what I wanted to ask you was, so I was listening to your podcast conversations with Kamara. And I remember you saying that in your twenties, your teens and your twenties, that you actually were very happy and that you did not have depression. So was this the catalyst to the depression starting or was it a insidious development that was happening over the years, maybe as a result of you subconsciously recognizing that he wasn't um, like, you know, showing his love to you, sexual love to you as much as you would have wanted? Yeah, um, I think, well, as it was explained to me, there's a genetic, um, I was predisposed so my life, my younger life was fine. When I got married to him, I was like 20, 22, 23. Um, I already had a daughter from a priest relationship. He was my, you know, my husband. I married him a couple of years later. We had a son before we got married. And my life was basically happy, kind of happy-go-lucky, kind of, sort of. But when I think back, I remember before I knew that I suffered from depression, if I, when I would wake up, I remember he and I get married. I remember waking up the morning after and I just remember opening my eyes and I, I felt so sad. And he was like, what's wrong, honey? And I'm like, 
don't have anything to look forward to. He just, I know he wanted to go, what is wrong with you? He goes, we're, we're putting our lives together. Our life, that's what we have to look forward to. And I was like, okay. But I remember sometimes even, I remember giving him a 30th birthday party way back in the day. And I remember waking up the morning after and he was like, you know, you ready to go to church? And I was like, I started crying. And he's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I don't have anything to look forward to. Your party's over. So when I think about stuff like that, that was already in me. I just didn't know it was depression. I just was like, I have to have something to look forward to. I don't live like that anymore. But back then, so like I said, just thinking about it, it's like, okay, well, this dot is connected to this. Okay. So even though I don't feel like I was a nuisance to him, it was just sometimes I just wanted stuff to look forward to. And maybe it's because I was so young and now I'm 56. So I'm way, way beyond that. But um, yeah, so um, just things that I can think about. I'm like, yeah, it was there. I just didn't know that it would uh, catch up with me in a sense. It would get progressively worse. So after the, so I'm curious why you decided during those initial six months of therapy to continue doing it when you were feeling terrible the entire time, right? Like I think most people, they go to therapy, if they don't start seeing results within a few weeks or a few months, they probably would want to stop doing it. What made you decide to continue showing up even if you were almost at the point of not being functional? And how did you end up getting out of that and getting better? I think it was either live or die. So I'm like, I have two kids. Um, I have my mom, I have a supportive family. I just literally, I had no choice. I didn't have a choice. I had to sit there and she, and my therapist kept telling me, she goes, just give it a chance. Well, you know, you're starting having more uh, rapport with me. Just give it a chance. And, and one thing she told me too, um, I wanted to leave him immediately. And I remember her telling me, she goes, are you, is he verbally abusive? I was like, well, no. She said, is he physically abusive? It's like, no. She said, do you feel safe around him? Other than my heartbroken, yeah. And she told me, she said, if you could just be patient, this therapy, you're going to get better. And she would tell me, she goes, you're going to get better. And I'd be looking at her like, lady, you don't even know what I feel like. Um, but um, it was literally self-preservation. I had to go to therapy. Couldn't go to work, but I had to go to therapy because I felt comfort in just sitting there for that hour or 45 minutes or an hour and a half. It was like, I, at some point, would like to think that I was, I would think that things are going to be better at some point. It's just there it wasn't. And I didn't want to be around him. So it was kind of a relief. Even if I'm sitting there and crying, at least I'm somewhere other than at the house looking at him. <laughs> so... So when those six months are up, I mean, do you start noticing an improvement at that point? What does the progression look like when things start to finally turn around for for a positive turn? And when do you start noticing an improvement in your mental health? And if you could kind of talk us through that, that turning point. I felt that there was a turning point in uh, 2009. I was depressed for years. Um, I lost my job at the city. Um, like I said, I was out for five or six months. And then I tried to go back to work and I just wasn't functional. I remember going to uh, the city building where I worked and it was like I had to just kind of psych myself out. And I remember just getting close to work and my heart, just the anxiety would be beating out of my chest. 
And I remember going into the parking lot so I could park and go in the building. And I know one of my, uh, remember one of my coworkers saw me, she goes, I was just a mess. Tears everywhere, just not together. And I remember her telling me, she goes, you're not ready to come back to work. And I knew I wasn't, but I was trying to uh, put my best foot forward. I went there that day. My supervisor sent me home. I went to my therapist again. But her thing was, she said she would she was trying to send me back to work because she didn't want me to have a financial burden of not having my job. But once I told her, I'm like, no, I have hundreds of hours of sick time. Plus, I was a member of the sick bank at the city of Tampa. So the financial part wasn't uh, wasn't an issue. And she was like, oh, my God, that's why I was trying to send you back. She said, but I didn't think you were ready. She said, but that was, uh, you know, that was her reason for trying to get me to go back to work and get like a routine and a normal um, schedule. But um, the turnarounds, like I said, 2006 was horrible. Uh, five was horrible. Six was horrible. 2007 was horrible. Eight, 2008, I was like, okay, maybe, you know, I want to get up and go out and eat a couple of times or whatever a week. And 2009, I was like, yeah, I am pretty much back to myself. So before depression, I weighed about 138 pounds. Uh, in the depression, I was like 110. I looked horrible. My eyes were like set back in my head. My arms were bony. And my family, my mom was just like, you got to eat, baby. And I'm like, I-, I can't. I can't even think about food because the ruminating pictures are in my brain so much. So all of that stress took away my appetite. Um, but to come out, starting to come out of it was in 2009, and I remember my therapist told me, she goes, okay, she said, I want you to do something totally different than what you've done. She said, if you want to volunteer to hospital, if you want to um, just, just anything, she said, I want you to find something to do. And it's got to be something different, something you've never done before. Okay. So I started doing local acting in Tampa. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I don't know what I saw on TV or whatever. And I was like, okay, that helped bring, uh, bring my confidence back. Um, I was hired for a couple of uh, independent uh, shows and stuff like at community theater. And those parts were really my personality. So I really wasn't acting other than the verbiage. Um, and I just started to get out more and just being around people. And I felt like, man, I am still so ready to leave him. And literally five years it took me with her to get myself together because her thing was in the beginning. She goes, you think you want to leave him? She said, you have to know that one day you're going to miss him. So her thing was to make me back to my old self or a better version. And I remember her, I was like, but I'm ready to go. She goes, no, I'm going to need you to hang in there, you know, a little bit longer. And when I look back, I'm like, man, I gave him an extra five years. But that was really for me to get better, to be able to get out from under him because I just, I don't love him anymore. He's done. So you stayed with him for five years after you saw what you saw during the therapy? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That is, I, I, I'm very impressed that you stuck in therapy, in depression for five years with a man that you didn't like love anymore. That's props to you. Props to you. That's, that's awesome. Um, so 
it sounds like you were, you know, very, very depressed. I, I, I cannot say that I've experienced clinical depression. I know Santi has. I have had really bad anxiety my entire life, like really bad social anxiety. I'd be, I'd scared, I'd be scared to go to a coffee shop by myself when it was at its worst. Like whenever I'd just go out to a grocery store, I would just get anxiety. Just being around people would give me like really bad anxiety. Um, so, but I've never experienced like deep down really bad depression. The only time I've done that was around relationship breakups or sometimes, you know, grief, but that's, that's normal. That's expected. So for you to go through five years of this with, with the man you didn't love, um, there has, it sounds like the main driver that kept you with us was your kids. It sounds like there was something that was more important than you which was actually keeping you together. So was, was it your kids that really kept you here? Was it something greater than you that did that? Or deep down, did you really believe in the process of therapy? I, um, I know that God saved me. I'm a Christian. I know that. But if I could dab a little into like the Black community, the African-American community, Black people as a whole do not believe in therapy. So it's like, I guess they feel that our uh, faith in God is, is, you know, not as strong as it should be. Um, You know, they think that you can just pray away uh, problems with depression. If it was that easy, I would have taken that road. So I, I know, I know God saved me, but he also led me to that therapist so that I can get help as a human being. He didn't just go, okay, Kamara, I'm going to heal you. It was like, no, I had to go through that process. And um, even when I first saw my therapist, as soon as I saw her, she's a black lady. And I was going, oh Lord, I don't want her. She's going to tell all my business because I'm sure she goes to church. And I didn't share that with her until years later. She was like, first of all, I have a, what do you call it? Confidentiality and HIPAA. She's like, I can't talk about you to other people. But literally when I saw her, I'm like, she's going to think I'm completely insane. She's black. She goes to church. But literally the black community is horrible with um, dealing with depression. And I try to explain it. You have high blood pressure, go to doctor, you get on meds. You have diabetes, you go to the doctor, you get on meds. So why, why would my faith be seemingly minute because I suffer from depression and I just happen to be a Christian? You know, so did I answer your question? I th- well, so my my question was like, what kept you, uh, like through the therapy five years of feeling horrible about yourself? Because that's that's a really long time. I don't I don't know anyone who's gone through what you've gone through and come out like on the other side as good as you have. So my my thing my my question was, what was that idea or that that thing that you were holding on to that kept you going through therapy that kept you alive it would be it would be my children my daughter had already graduated high school i had her when i was 18 she had already graduated high school my son i believe was in the 10th grade so it was a uh, it was really my faith in god it was the love i had for them but also knowing that one day i get to just get up, pack my clothes and leave him. So all of that, but the, the, the pivotal point was that I know that once I get better, 
I am going to leave him and I, I'll never look back. So it sounds like that it was a belief in a higher power. It was the love of your family and the planning of a goal that you wanted to achieve were the things that helped you get through. Mm-hmm. Completely. That, that is exactly, um, that's the only thing that could have kept me really. So when you're um, <clears throat> going through this depression, I imagine um, suicidal ideations are probably quite prevalent throughout this, this period in your life. I'm curious what that, how that manifests for you in your mind. And did you have, cause I know for me, I've gone through certain suicidal bout, bouts in my past, but one of the things that kept me from doing it other than the hope was also just the, the challenge around deciding how I would do it and the fear of failing an attempted suicide and the fear of trying to attempt suicide and experiencing a lot of physical pain as a result. Were these things that went through your head during your time with severe depression? Oh, completely. Um, it, I know I talk about it uh, in my podcast and in my book, but I felt like, I mean, I know people say that you'll go to hell if you commit suicide. So I don't want to do that. So what I would do in my my sad brain is I would like be just talking to God in my head and I'd be like, okay, God, I know suicide is wrong but I feel like you understand how I feel. So if you would just be so kind and gracious as to let me lay down, go to sleep. And I just enter myself into heaven. heaven. So it sounds kooky, but in my brain, I felt like I had no doubt that I would go to heaven. I'm like, I'm not going to hell. I believe God. I've accepted Christ. I grew up in church. I have that one-on-one relationship with God. So he's not going to punish me. He knows how, how I feel. So... I'm just going to pray every time that I just take my shower, you know, uh, read my Bible and lay down. And I just wish that he would take me on to heaven and that that would be okay because he knows me. He knows the pain I'm going through. So literally, I just felt that way. Um, And I don't know if you know about the, the suicidal ideation in 2018. No, I'm not familiar with that. Okay, um, so in 2017, 2017, I was in my second marriage, uh, found out that he uh, had an affair with his best friend's wife. Boom, crash and burn again. That's when I literally was hospitalized. And I thought it was twice, but when I think about it, it's actually three times because I'm like, I was in Brandon and Tampa and I was in Orlando just desperately trying to get help. But yeah, I had a, I had pretty much, I was like, I'm, I'm done. I am completely done. So I'm so glad I have the same therapist. To me, it was like, I had nothing. There was nothing I needed to live for because in my brain, my daughter, my son, they're thriving. They don't need me. My grandson, I was, I put together a letter for my grandson uh, who was only three years old at the time. And in my letter, I was writing to him to explain to him why I why I won't be around as he grows up. So I had nothing. I, you know, I'm like, okay, I've raised my kids. My grandson has a ton of people who love him. I'm done with this marriage. I'm done with this guy. You know, I've lived my life. I've lived a pretty good life. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm, I'm pretty done. So yeah. So that was 2017 was horrible. 2018 was. When I think of 2018, I'm like, oh, God, how did I get through that? It was, uh, those years were horrible. 
Yeah, I can relate to that a lot. I remember sometimes just thinking at night, like, oh, if this, if I could just go to sleep and not wake up, that would be amazing, you know? Or I would think it would be so much easier if there was like an off switch for my life. I could just, like a light switch, just yeah, exactly, opt just opt out. So those were the things that definitely went through my mind when I was going through severe depression as well. And kind of circling back to what you mentioned about the Black community not being open to therapy, you see that a lot with with invisible, what we call invisible diseases or diseases or illnesses that you can't physically see, right? So people think that they don't actually exist because you can't really tell if someone has a mental illness just by looking at them typically, right? So unfortunately, there is stigma still around mental health, but I think that there is more awareness that's being developed overall, especially, you know, in the last several years. So I'm hopeful that that continues to improve. Another question I have for you is during your these darkest times, like 2005, 2017, 18, did you ever have negative thoughts or emotions towards God? Did you ever question your faith? Did you ever get angry at God during these times? I remember being angry with God when I, you know, when I found out my first husband wasn't perfect. <laughs> I was just like, I felt so, um, what do you call it? I just felt jaded. I'm like, he's been like this the whole time. Like, almost like, God, why didn't you give me um, some insight into, you know, into him with this? Um, like, why does my have to, why does my husband have to be the the pervert? Because that's what I thought he was. <laughs> so it was like, I felt like, like, why did my, why did my marriage have to be all messed up like everybody else's now? I thought I had this marriage that, you know, of course wasn't perfect, but I know he loved me and my kids. We loved him. We had a beautiful home. We took vacations. We loved, you know, going out to eat all the time, uh, just everything. So my life was, it wasn't perfect, but it was, uh, it was, it was full. And I was, I would say at least 90% happy. So then when that happened with him, crash and burn, oh no, what my reality is not my reality, you know? So, yeah, so those times were, uh, they were, they were really difficult. And I just, it's like, I wanted God to tell me like, why, like, why didn't you tell me this? Maybe I wouldn't have married him in the first place. I was 23. I probably wouldn't have listened to God if he had said, no, no, this man is not it. I'd have been like, oh no, he's, he's good. Or I can help him or, and it just, it was, uh, but I don't, I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I hated God. I just, I hated how I felt and I hated that he wasn't the man that I thought that he was. So it sounds like you, it was all a lot of hate towards yourself and a lack of acceptance about how you felt and just continual repression and denial because what you went through is very difficult when you have this idea about, you know, you have this egoic idea of how your marriage is and then that just completely gets shattered and your, your sense of self is just gone and I think this is when the depression really sets in, when when you have no sense of self, you have no meaning because that gets shattered and you're unable to accept that. But through therapy, it sounds like you are finally able to accept, okay, yes, he w is not a good person and that it, it is okay that I experienced that because, you know, this is what people go through sometimes and it, it is okay to feel like shit. But it's just like sometimes we don't – it feels so horrible to be in that situation. Like the bodily sensations are so painful that we just like we don't want to confront. We don't want to accept it. So 
Yeah. And it sounds like that you also utilized uh, antidepressants during this time. So I really want to get, are, are you still taking antidepressants? No, um, I took antidepressants from 2005 to 2018, with 2018 being I really, really wanted to die again. So I just, in my brain, I'm like, why am I on medication when I feel like I want to kill myself? So I ended up going into treatment because I didn't know a lot about medicine and benzodiazepines. I know what that was, but uh, what addicted for me. So I, like a normal person would have to take like one medication, they'd have to take tw- uh, 10, 15 milligrams. My brain, I had to have 300 milligrams. So I have always, it's like my body needed so much more because of the rumination and me just thinking this is the worst thing in the world, the worst thing in the world. So like I said, in 2018, it was like, what am I, why am I even taking medicine? So I actually went to treatment, what is called to titrate off of them so I could be down to zero. So at night, she gives me an, uh, a really like um, an old fashioned medication that can kind of help me sleep. It really doesn't even work. <laughs> so really, I'm a night owl, two or three o'clock in the morning, like this morning, maybe four o'clock, but I got to get up at seven. So yeah, so I think at a certain point, those medicines just were not working. So I'm like, why am I putting this in my body when I feel like I want to die. So got off medication and I never, ever thought that I would ever be off medication. So how was that process of getting off of the medication? Was it just like simple cold turkey or was there a lot of adversity internally that you had to go through a lot of urges and withdrawals in order to come out on the other side, not needing it anymore? Yeah, the most um, the withdrawals would be my like if I haven't taken my night, you know, to sleep in a couple of days, the back of my neck will start getting sore, weird. And then I start to get a headache and then um, I would feel nauseous. So I had to go through that. So in treatment, when I was coming off of the medication, uh, what is it? Uh, melatonin it's supposed to be natural and it'll regulate Nope. And being in treatment since I was a a suicidal ideation watch every 15 minutes, they had to come into the room and I had to raise my hand if I was still awake. So you just think all through the night, every 15 minutes, my hand is going up and the orderly would be like, okay, and they have to mark it down. But literally nothing helped me even to this day. I can take the little, um, you know, medication to help me sleep. It really, I sleep because I'm tired. My brain is tired. So I didn't know that was the only withdrawals that I went through with the medication. So I'm curious um, if you could kind of go a little bit more into detail about why during what seems to be like the, the worst time in your life, you decided at that point to get off the medication rather than after you are, were already starting to feel a lot better. Yeah, um, I guess I just thought that even I guess I was on so many different medications. She'd try one thing. She'd explain to me, you know, what it's going to do uh, for me or or the negative effects of it. And I normally don't um, I normally don't name medications, but it was one medication. It was lithium. And I remember that's how bad off I was. And I remember her. She was explaining. She said, OK, Kamar, she goes, um, you know, 
it was like I wasn't getting any better. So she's like, I have one more medication. And she said, but I'm going to explain to you. It can make you lose your hair. She said, you'll have these involuntary movements with your mouth. And, and she was telling me, she goes, but most women, they won't take it even if they need it because they don't want their hair to fall out. And I just remember being so desperate to feel better. I remember telling her, I was like, I don't want, all of a sudden I said, I don't want to kill myself. So you can get, put me on the lithium. And if my hair falls out, it falls out because I was so desperate to feel better. So my hair didn't fall out and this is not my hair, but my hair didn't fall out. And, um, but it would have been okay with me if it had, if that was going to make me feel better. That's just, uh, that's just how horrible I felt. So it sounds like going through all this adversity kind of created a shift within you and helped you to become a more resilient and conscious human being. And it seems like now you're involved with, you're in a better place in your life and you're involved with some projects. You have a podcast, you've wrote a book, and it seems like you're trying to have a positive impact on the world. So we get to hear about kind of what happened after finally all of the depressive bouts, you know, how did that transformation take place and what are you up to these days? I don't know if you all talk about codependency. I didn't know I was codependent until 2018. Can you imagine that? Until 2018, I go from relationship to relationship because I've never wanted to be by my, uh, you know, alone without a boyfriend or husband. So literally when I was in treatment in Orlando in 2018, I go, oh, I'll be doggone, I'm codependent, didn't even know. So anyways, once I left him, um, that was the 2018, um, 2018, back down in the dumps. But I, um, I began to feel better and I felt renewed. Um, I felt like I have this great opportunity to inspire people to please at least seek therapy, give it a try, go to one, go to one session and just see how it works. But uh, I don't know, just those years were difficult, but coming out of it, I had the bright idea. I was like, you know what? I'm going to write a book. And I wrote my book in two weeks, two weeks. So I used to be at a, yep. I used to be at a temp agency just some years ago. And I am, when I worked for the temp agency, it was at apartment communities. So I remember uh, one of the apartment communities over in Brandon, Florida, went over there and I didn't plan to write my book at that moment. I just remember the manager, she's like, oh, Kamar, if you could just uh, answer the phones. And I'm like, you don't want me to show apartments? She goes, no, 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 we just want you. And she put me in an office and it's like something just went ding, ding, ding. I remember going over to the copier, getting a stack of copy paper, stapling it. And I just started writing. And I finished when I uh, would leave there, I'd go home. I lived with my daughter because I couldn't afford to be on my own. I uh, would go home to her house and I would sit up all night long typing the pages that I had. And I still have those and it's a stack of them. And literally that is how my book was born. And then I was like, okay, you know, I've heard of self-publishing. Let me get it self-published through Amazon, did that. And that is how um, it went to the book. And then it was like, somebody mentioned, oh, you should do an audiobook. Okay. So I recorded my audio book during the pandemic. And then after that, why don't you do a podcast? Why don't I do a podcast? So that's, um, I'm the, I'm single for the first time, like really, really single. I don't have a boyfriend. I date, but I don't have a boyfriend. I don't have this big, you know, beautiful house. Uh, I have a fancy car now that I just got a couple months ago, but literally it's like my life is completely, completely renewed. 
And as I always say, my tagline is, not only am I a proponent of mental health dialogue, I am literally the poster child for recovery. You know, you've been through an amazing journey and, you know, you should be very proud of yourself. That is not something that most people can can get through. And I'm I'm curious when you were battling through, especially in 2018, when you got off antidepressants and you it sounds like this was really the turning point was 2018 um was there any practices like habits or routines that you use maybe like breath work meditation anything to that effect that helped you push through and and after 2018 how long did it take you to get back on to your feet and like have these really empowering beliefs about yourself and really turn your life around? It was actually uh, 2019 was okay. It wasn't horrible. It was okay. You know, I didn't have any money. I was working these temp jobs. I couldn't seem to keep a job. Um, But, you know, just even moving in with my daughter, that helped me not to have to foot the bill for everything. And it helped her and my grandson. I could see him every day. Um, I didn't have all of the expenses that I would have had on my own, but really the turning point was really, I probably, you know, I would say, okay, I'm 56. I may only have 20 years left. I wasted so much time being depressed, which I couldn't help it. I feel like there is nothing on the face of this earth that I can't do. I'm already starting to write a second book, but when I said, okay, I'm going to do a second book. And I'm like, I really poured my heart and soul into this first book. What am I going to write about? My daughter, she goes, mom, she said, do something a little different. She said, why don't you write about all of these kooky dates you've been having? So already I'm like 200 pages into the second book because it's going to be about the codependency, which I didn't even realize that I had. And oh, yeah, let me talk about some of these characters while I'm out here dating. And even though I've been married twice and divorced twice, I am not going to be some man's girlfriend forever. I want to get married again, even though it's a third time. I just feel like I have all of this opportunity. I'm so, so much better. You know, I've gained weight probably too much, but I'm I'm not. And I can't say if something happened, you know, I'm going to be strong. I don't know because none of us know what's going to happen, you know. But I, I, I still, like even now, I still go to therapy because she and I will laugh. You think 18 years, she see me tall. Short, skinny, fat, divorced, in love, out of love, broke, having money. She has seen me at every spectrum that there is. And uh, I just, I don't know, I just feel like um, even being able to be on this podcast, my life, this is what I want my life to be. I want my life to really and truly inspire people of all colors, of all backgrounds, uh, CEOs to janitors. Um And I want to hopefully in some months, I can leave my day job. I'm an executive at a large nonprofit. That's my day job. I want to be on somebody's airplane and traveling all over the country speaking. I want to be on what they call be on a ticket. I want a tour to come up and I'm a part of that. And I'm on a ticket with somebody who who may be a motivational speaker. I'm not motivational. I try to inspire, but I'm not, oh, it's motivation. That's not who I am. So literally, that's how I want to do the next 20 years is just, and I'm afraid afraid to fly, but I want to nip that in the bud and I want to travel. 
and I want to do book tours and I want to literally get on any stage. If it's at, you know, an arena, a school, um, a church, C-suite executives, regular people. I just want to talk about my experience and let them know it's not the end. So for me at 56, it's the beginning. And that's what I want to do. That's what I want my life to be like. So would you say that the turning point really, you said between 2018 and 2019, was this realization that you had wasted so much of your life being in this depressed state and yet you still pushed through it. So through through all that adversity, there was just a realization, some epiphany where, where your beliefs instantaneously changed. And you were able to use that energy to just completely go in a direction that you've always wanted to go. Right, exactly. Um, my therapist, you know, she would tell me, she goes, I am so proud of you. And I'm like, well, not why, but kind of like why, you know, I've been so depressed. And she's like, a lot of people don't come out of this. And it's like, so as I get older, I'm like, I never want to have another 2018 I would rather die for real than to have another 2018 because I that I can't I couldn't do that over. But um, just over time, and I know even doing podcasts and you know um, I'm doing TikToks now, you know to uh, do some of the reading from my books, and then I'll just start talking. I I just I, I wasted so much time trying to control something that I had no control over. I can't control a man. You know, and yeah, I want to get married again one day, but if he cheats on me, I'm gone. I'm not just going to settle, you know. Um, I don't know. I just want to just inspire people because a lot of people are shocked. Like, what? You tell people you were suicidal? Yeah. What, what, what do I have to lose? I don't have anything to lose. If a man doesn't want to date me because I suffer from depression, well, sir, I don't think we're supposed to be together in the first place. It's like I have no, I have no embarrassment of what I've gone through and how I felt. I mean, at all, I would speak it on any stage that I have. What, what I'm alive. You know, what could be worse than not wanting to live? I've done that. Yeah. I think you have a great mindset around that. And it's, I think it, you being vulnerable gives other people permission to be vulnerable as well. So that's a beautiful thing. And I think you have a great mindset around that. We're about to wrap things up, but before we do so, if people want to follow you or learn more about your work, what would be the best way for them to do that? Okay, they could go to my website, of course, www.kamara, K-A-M-A-R-A, Mikkel, M-I-K-E-L, worldwide.com. And they can, uh, you know, uh, listen to my podcast. It's a, you know, page in there, listen to the podcast. Uh, the podcast is on iHeart and Spotify, and it's called Conversations with a K, Conversations with Kamara. Um, I'm on TikTok. I think it's Kamara Mikhail 4. I'm just trying to get an audience on TikTok, which is how I met you all. Um, but yeah, those are, uh, if they want to write me, they can write me at uh, Kamara Mikhail Worldwide, P.O. Box 271-014, Tampa, Florida, 33688. And they can go on Amazon.com and buy my book. And there's different versions. So the yellow one is uh, a bridge filter. So the original, there's profanity in it because it's literally how my life was and what I wanted to say. So um, I don't recommend any of them for children. So I really would rather somebody be 21 years or older. 
So the yellow one, like I said, a bridge filtered. The pink one is the Christian versions, and it's the same. It's toned down, but it has uh, some script relatable scriptures about depression and stuff. I have one book that's a different color, and it's going to be, I'm sorry, it's the university, uh, college universal, university edition. So, yeah. And I just feel like, you know, I, I'm not even touched the surface of what I can do. Just getting started. And the book is Kept My Enemy Closer by Pamara McKell. Make sure to, to pick that up. Make sure to pick that up on Amazon, everyone, and follow her website, her TikTok, her podcast. Um, all of these links will be included in today's show notes. So be sure to take a look at that after listening to the show. And before we ask you our final question, Kamara, I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge and recognize you for the very arduous and challenging battle that you have overcome with depression and anxiety. And even though you went through many, many years of deep spiritual pain, you decided to continue to move forward and create a better life for yourself and do the inner work to finally heal those wounds so that you could be more free. And then now you're on this, this chapter of your life where you're trying to spread a positive message to help other people who are going through a difficult time as well. So wanted to take a moment to acknowledge you for that today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. So our final question for you is if you had one piece of advice to give people who are going through severe depression and anxiety, and they're looking for a way out, they're looking for a way to get through it and to heal, what advice would you give those people who are suffering from that right now? I would say to them, at least think about therapy. It can't make you feel any worse than you already do. Just if you went to a therapist for, uh, considered it and went for five minutes, there you have nothing to lose. Go see, give yourself an opportunity and don't beat yourself up. Don't feel embarrassed. Go. You can you don't have to go into an office. You can do the what telehealth where it's on on your phone or whatever. But find a way to let it be rigorous that you you feel like you have nothing to lose. You you have to want to get help. And that help is out there. And if I can survive it several times, so can you. Nothing to be embarrassed about. Just just go. Go and see or talk to somebody, a pastor or a, a close family friend, or maybe even a stranger. I talk to people all the time and I'm not even a mental health therapist. You know, I just talk to them about my experience and that is all I can offer. But don't ever, don't ever, ever, ever get up because you give up because you don't know that goodness could be right on the other side of that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Chasing Presence podcast. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word by telling your family and friends and by sharing it on social media. You can also show us your support by leaving a review. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with us, our contact information is in the show notes. Please send us a message as we'd love to hear from you and get your feedback. As always, thanks again for listening. Stay present and have a great day.